as we um, approach the sermon text uh, for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. Um, and as we read it, um, I want you to see if, as we read it, to see if you can see a, a logical order or flow to the text initially. The text is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. <clears throat> There we read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you uh, the sooner. So as we approach this text, it's important for us to remember the context of the epistle to uh, the Hebrews, that it was written to Christians who grew up Jewish, who grew up in a Jewish context. They were raised in a context of worship that was temple-centered, that was centered around a priesthood, a priesthood that, as we read in Leviticus 16, was decked out in ornate clothing. They saw these priests interceding for them in the temple courts. They were visible mediators for uh, these people that grew up in the Jewish faith. They saw these priests always working on their behalf. And they also saw uh, the sacrifices, sacrifices that were constantly being offered at the temple. They saw the blood that was constantly being shed. There was a difficulty for these Hebrew Christians going from that reality, that daily reality uh, over to uh, Christianity. Christianity in which they had uh, no more uh, temple attendance. There was no more priesthood because as Christians, we know that Christ is our great high priest. And he's our great high priest who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven where he continually intercedes for us. There's no more temple, there's no more priesthood. 
And there are no more sacrifices because Christ is the final sacrifice. He died and offered himself once for all. But notice here in our text in verses 16 through 17 that even though now we are in the new covenant, we read that there are still sacrifices that you and I are to offer to God. Look at verses 15 through 16. Now, through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such, there it is again, sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so I want to ask the question, you know, what is the Bible uh, speaking about here? Are we here going back to the old covenant, to its sacrifices again? I thought we left that and are in the new covenant now. Well, you know, in order to get at some understanding about what these sacrifices are, um, we are going to work through these verses, beginning in verse 7. And you'll note that the points of the sermon are, are taken from key verses in the text, verses that I believe will help us transition from one idea to the next to help us follow the argument of the text. If you recall, before I read the text this morning, I asked if you could discern perhaps some logical flow, some cohesion to what the author is getting at. And that's what I hope that we will see this morning as we work our way verse by verse through the Scripture. So we begin the first point that we are, as we read in verse 7, to remember the, our, uh, your leaders as we read, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we have there in verse 7 the command to remember our leaders. And then if you skip down to verses 17 through 19, the idea is picked up again. We read there, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us that we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So, as we consider what the author of Hebrews is writing here, we see that he is referring to loving and diligent pastors and elders who labor in the church in order to teach and shepherd the members in the church. And look at, look at how these elders are described. Verse 7, they are described as those who spoke the word of God. This refers to the fact that these were elders, these were pastors that um, diligently preached, that diligently taught, that diligently labored to give right uh, doctrinal instruction. And then verse 17, they're also described as those who were keeping watch over your souls. The elders oversee, we know, the care of souls in the church by teaching and prayer for members and, and care for them. And we read in this context in verse 17 
that they were doing this in the Hebrew church, uh, knowing that they will have to give an account. This really puts in perspective, doesn't it, the seriousness of the call of an elder, of a teaching elder. Sometimes we refer to them as ministers or pastors. Also as ruling elders, those who are appointed by the church. There's a seriousness to the call. There are eternal consequences that we read here that we will have to give an account to God of what kind of oversight we exercise over the church. But I want to ask this morning, as, as the writer of Hebrews is bringing up the importance of, of good leadership and of obeying the leaders of the church, you know, why is he reminding the Hebrews specifically to remember and obey the elders? Well, it may be because there was some tension between some of the members and the elders of the church. But it may also be, and I think the key is found there in verse 7. He says, remember those who spoke to you the word of God. And then at the end of the verse, imitate their faith. The reason that the writer of Hebrews is calling them to remember the elders is because it was the elders of the church, the pastors and the ruling elders, who taught to them the word of God. And the calling is to remember what they taught and also to imitate what they taught the church. Remember, this was a time, keep in mind, um, before the New Testament was completed and, and canonized. You know, today... We have Bibles, Bibles that are leather-bound, they're complete. We even have study Bibles of all kinds that help us to understand the Word of God. Uh, We today, we stand on 2,000 years of of church history, and we have wonderful documents like the historic creeds and and the confessions. Um, We have books that came out of the Reformation and that are continually being written, these aids that help us to understand what the Bible teaches, what our faith is all about, and we can take this for granted, right? But remember that these Hebrew Christians in the first century were completely dependent on their elders for instruction. They didn't have a completed New Testament in front of them. They were dependent on their elders for guidance in the faith. And that's why the writer says to those in the church, imitate the faith of your elders. Dennis Johnson, um, whom you may recall, preached at our church on Reformation Sunday last year. He writes about this passage here in Hebrews 13, specifically verse 7. He says, The Lord directs us to look uh, through our leader's way of life uh, to their faith. He does not just say, points out Dennis Johnson, do as your elders are doing or behave as they behave or, or try to imitate their acts of kindness, their integrity, their zeal and commitment to the cause of Christ. No, what the writer of Hebrews specifically says is imitate their faith. Imitate their faith, because it is only faith, faith that looks outside of ourselves 
and rests in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It is only faith that unites us to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the big idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to the Hebrews is stick to this teaching. It's right what they taught you. It's right. It's correct what the elders have been bringing to you, this word of God that you have been instructed in. They have taught you Christ. And so stick to it. Hold fast to it. You know, we have an idea of what the Hebrew Christians were being taught, don't we? We have an idea in this letter. They were being taught that Jesus is the divine Son of God, as we see in Hebrews chapters 1 uh, through 3, that he is the divine Son of God, that he is the fulfillment of the old covenant promises. He is the Messiah sent from God. He is the Son of David. And then throughout the letter of Hebrews, the reference to the fact that he, he is the superior prophet, priest, and king, that Jesus is the only Savior from sin. So the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing to the Hebrew Christians, do not depart from what your leaders taught you because what they taught you is true. It is the gospel. And it does not change. It does not change. This is what leads to our next point. As we see in verse 9, the exhortation, do not therefore be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Notice uh, the connection between verse 8 and 9. Uh, verse 8 is a common memory verse. We read in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. See, what they were being taught about Christ does not change. What they heard from their elders does not change. Loved ones, the gospel does not change. Why? Because Jesus stays the same and he lives forever. And therefore, the way of discipleship to him does not change. We know that people try to change the gospel. They try to change it either by adding to it or, or taking away from it. We might say that there's a change by addition that is attempted by many. Right? Uh, one example is in the first century, there were the Judaizers. They were trying to change the gospel by addition. Their theology was that well, Jesus is not sufficient, so you need Jesus and circumcision. You need Jesus and some parts of the Old Covenant in order to, to truly uh, be saved. They were trying to change the gospel by adding to it, and we see that today. There's also change by subtraction. Uh, today, specifically, um, it is by removing truth from the gospel that some might feel is politically incorrect, that might seem insensitive to you know, other cultures or other religions. One example is uh, the, 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 the teaching that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You know, for some people, this is offensive, and so... Many Christians want to try to remove, or we might say non-Christians want to try to remove, right, this central aspect of the gospel and say that Jesus is only one of many 
of paths to God. Beloved ones, this is yet another attempt to change the gospel, either by addition or by subtraction. So why does, why does this happen? Well, it happens because of sin. Sin that has clouded the minds of unbelievers. And it happens because we have an active, uh, aggressive enemy who seek to, seeks always to twist God's truth. Uh, we know this enemy is the devil. Uh, he is the one who was doing this from the beginning. If you recall in the, the account in Genesis, the creation account, when the serpent who, Satan, right, he came to Eve and he asked that, that question, uh, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There, Satan was calling into question what God had said. And then the direct challenge to God's word when he said to Eve, you will not surely die. God said one thing, and here was Satan saying, no, God is wrong. The challenge to God's word, to changing it, specifically the gospel, has been around since the beginning, and it continues today. And so we need to hear, brothers and sisters, the exhortation that we must not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings because the gospel does not change. Christ does not change. This is why Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was departing from Ephesus, he warned the elders and said, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, loved ones, Paul And the writer of Hebrews knew all too well man's sinful tendency to change the gospel. So the exhortation in verse 9 is, do not be led astray by these false teachers, by these words that they are bringing, these words that are given in addition or as a result of subtracting from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what kind of strange teachings were the Hebrew Christians tempted by? These teachings, we know, were centered around Judaism, the temptation to return to the old covenant way of worship. And so, as we look at verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 13, he says again, do not be led astray or away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, uh, the foods that he is referring to here, these are uh, the meats of the uh, sacrificed animals, especially the peace offerings, which Israelite worshipers would eat in the temple courtyard after the other parts of the animal were consumed by fire on the altar of burnt offering. 
So there were offerings being made on the altar. Some of those offerings were consumed by fire, and usually some parts of it were allowed to be consumed by the Israelite worshipers. One example of this is in Leviticus chapter 19, beginning of verse 5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. So what we see here, the writer of Hebrews is referring to this temptation that the Hebrew Christians had of returning to this way of worship, returning to this way of sacrifice and then eating of that sacrificed animal. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that these sacrifices, you know, God had put in place for a time. They were serving a purpose of pointing to Christ and causing God's people to anticipate the full and final sacrifice that God would provide in his own son. But now, these old covenant sacrifices no longer are in place. They have been fulfilled in Christ. You know, again, this was difficult for the Hebrew Christians to process at times, to accept, because they had grown up in Judaism. They had grown up in this faith that was centered around the temple and and the sacrificial system. And they were used to these offerings that they could see and smell and then taste and touch. See, they could see these sacrifices for sins being offered before their eyes. And they can see that there had been a sacrifice for sin because they are the ones who had brought that offering to the priest and watched the priest slaughter it, and they watched the blood flowing. See, they saw the beauty of the priest's robes. They smelled that aroma of the sacrifices, and they sat there marveling at the architecture of the temple. So in a sense, all of this caused them to feel assurance of forgiveness. That Here was a sacrifice being made for me by the priest before God. So the question arose in their minds, you know, now in Christianity, in our new faith in Christ, now where do we find that kind of assurance? The writer says here in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What is he getting at there? Well, the word altar here is not meant to be taken literally, right? It refers to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the whole sacrificial action of Christ. The writer here is getting at the fact that for those who are still stuck in the old covenant way of worship, of wanting to approach God through animal sacrifices, they have no right to partake of Christ because they will not benefit from Christ if they believe and they still need to approach God in the old way. If they do not trust in Christ alone for salvation, they have no 
right to benefit from him. But, the writer says, for those who do trust in him and his finished work, we read here, they are sanctified. Notice that. They are made holy. And here, he explains why Jesus' sacrifice of himself was superior to the old covenant sacrifices. Why, if we trust in him, we have assurance of forgiveness. Look at verses 11 through 13. We read, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So here in verse 11, the writer is referring to what we read in Leviticus chapter 16 about the Day of Atonement, that the sin offering was burned outside the camp. It was burned away from the city, away from the holy place. Why? Because it carried the defilement of the people's sin. It was a sin offering that was bearing the people's sin. We read again in Leviticus 16, verse 27. And the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh shall be burned up with fire. And the writer of Hebrews is drawing a connection between the Day of Atonement between Leviticus chapter 16 and those sacrifices that were burned up outside the camp, those sinful, defiling sacrifices that were taken outside the camp and consumed with fire. He's drawing a connection between that and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the same way, Jesus was executed outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside of the holy city, away from the holy temple. He was executed at Golgotha. We read from John chapter 19, there in verse 16. They took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And then verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. Again, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So it was near. It was not in. It was outside of the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Loved ones, it might seem like a very technical argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. But ultimately, the connection that he is drawing is that Jesus is the day of atonement sacrifice. He is the one... The Day of Atonement was pointing toward. And the writer of Hebrews says that not only is he the Day of Atonement sacrifice, but he is a superior, he is a better sacrifice because his sacrifice was once for all. He makes this point in verse 12, that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's a key phrase, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
The word sanctify means to make holy. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Christ's sacrifice, loved ones, actually accomplished something. It made us holy. It washed us of our sins forever. His blood has washed away our sins. It's not like the old covenant sacrifices that needed to be repeated, but his sacrifice was once for all, and it actually accomplished the washing away of sin once for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we read, we have been sanctified, we have been made holy, we have been washed. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The writer of Hebrews says there in verse 13, therefore, therefore, as a result of being made holy through Christ, through this one sacrifice that God has provided for us, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. This phrase, outside the camp, it refers to Judaism. It means let us go outside of Judaism, outside of the Old Covenant, outside of the temple worship, outside of the Old Covenant way of of approaching God. And let us instead go to Jesus. Why? Because he is the one sacrifice that has made us holy before God. And so for us this morning, who may not be tempted to, you know, return to a Judaism, we might be tempted instead to find assurance of forgiveness through some other means. We might be tempted not to return to Judaism, but to seek assurance and salvation in some other way. The writer of Hebrews says, no, let us go to Jesus, to Jesus only. Some of us might be tempted in another way to forsake Christ in order to avoid the shame and embarrassment that may come when people find out that we are Christians. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do it. Let us go to Jesus. Why? He is the only mediator between man and God, and he is the only one who can sanctify us. Let us, therefore, go to him. For he has made us holy. And now, having been made holy, what we can do is offer worship to God that is pleasing to him. So we see our third point. Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Verses 15 and 16. We offer these sacrifices of praise to God, we read, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Remember the way we began the question of, I thought that the sacrificial system was done. We no longer have to offer these sacrifices to God. What is the writer of Hebrews getting at? Beloved ones, Jesus was the last sacrifice for sin. We no longer need to offer sacrifices for sin as was done in the Old Covenant. But as Christians, we now offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, one that is mediated through Christ. 
and that is motivated by gratitude for the grace that you and I have received in him. And that is, that is the key that we find there in verse 15. That is the key that we read there, that we are to bring these sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving through Jesus. Why? Because we need to come to God through Christ. See, the one who is our mediator, the one who has made us holy. When we come to God through Christ, he receives and he rejoices in, we see first our worship. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And when we gather here on the Lord's Day in the name of Christ, what we are doing is pleasing to God because our worship of God, as imperfect as it is, is pleasing to him because it is mediated by his perfect son. Secondly, we see that a sacrifice can be offered to those who come to God through Christ uh, by service to others. We read in verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, when we come to God through Christ, even our good works, our good works that arise out of a true faith in Christ, are pleasing to God. They are no longer like the filthy rags of those who come to him outside of Christ. And then we read that not only is our worship and our service to others pleasing to God when we come through Christ, but also all of our lives, all of our lives. Paul, The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul here is speaking about the fact that when we come to God through Christ, our bodies, our whole being is now in service to God. Not only our worship, Sunday mornings and throughout the week, not only our occasional good works, but all of our lives are now given in service to God. Our life of worship is continual. It's ongoing as a result of praise to God for our salvation through Christ. See, it's now obedience and worship that is motivated by gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for us. It's a life, loved ones. The writer of Hebrews is getting at here, and the Apostle Paul is speaking of here, a life that is is characterized uh, not by worrying about if we are truly saved. It's a life characterized by not questioning Christ's sufficiency at every turn, but it is a life instead characterized by receiving and resting in Christ and knowing that he has made us holy and then through him offering praise to God in our decisions, in our work, in our parenting, in our thought life, in our worship, in every aspect of our lives, of being, as Paul says, 
a living sacrifice, not a dead one, but one that is living, that is continually offering praise to God. The writer of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul are both referring to a life that is motivated and that is undergirded by joy, by thanksgiving, and by gratitude for what Christ has done and for what Christ has accomplished for us. Loved ones, may God grant us the grace to live in such a way. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for Christ who has accomplished our redemption. We thank you for the way that the older covenant pointed to him and the way that your people anticipated him and that even as we read the old covenant, the old testament, we see how he was revealed in so many types and shadows through different people and through different offerings and sacrifices. And we thank you that in the fullness of time, he came to fulfill your eternal plan. We pray, Lord, uh, this day and every day that you would cause us to live in light of uh, what he has accomplished. Lord, teach us how to live every day as living sacrifices, living uh, in attitudes that are worshipful, that are reverent, that are grateful for all that Christ has accomplished for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.